0: Start that all over again. I've always had an interest in that song, Wrong and Boyo, by The Clash. Ever since the first time I heard it, I thought, why did they stop there? That first part, I want to hear that song finish. But they break it and take the song in a new direction, with a different tempo and melody. I thought, what's up with that? It seemed like such a great beginning. Well, it took me this long to try to answer those questions. This is David Colosi with another episode of The Napping Wizard Sessions. I don't listen to The Clash all that often. They had their moment, and they had their moment with me, but from whatever weird tangent that brought me back to them, it was actually a snail named after Joe Strummer. I started listening to London Calling again. I played it on auto-repeat, and I started wondering again about Wrong and Boyo. So let's start by going back to the source. I'll play The Clash, Wrong and Boyo, from start to finish, and take it from there. This is from 1979. hear the break between the first part and the second part with horn section and organ it's all there and every time I hear it I still want to hear them finish the first part that would have been such a great song and it turns out it is a great song in fact it charted at number one in the U.S. in 1958 and number seven in the U.K. but it wasn't by The Clash it was by Lloyd Price it's an R&B reworking of the classic murder ballad of Stagger Lee I'll play that now before I get rolling so you can hear what I'm talking about. This is the song I wanted to hear.
1: The night was clear, and the moon was yellow, and the leaves came tumbling down.
0: Even though Lloyd Price hit number one with Stagger Lee, he wasn't the first one to write this murder ballad. Most recently, people will think of the graphic version that Nick Cave made popular. But the song dates back to the 1890s. Now, before I get into it, I want to say that I'm not going to uncover any new scholarship about the song Wrong and Boyo or Stagger Lee. I'm going to play the songs that inform the clashes Wrong and Boyo and retell the historical and textual work that's already been done. But by the end, I will add a new idea about the title. I'm not going to be super thorough about the history, but lucky for us, that work has been done by Marcus Gray in a book titled Route 19 Revisited, The Clash in London Calling. He does what I've apparently wanted someone to do for a long time, which is break down Wrong and Boyo, along with each of the tracks on London Calling and put it in context. Published before Marcus Gray's book, Cecil Brown's book, Stagger Lee Shot Billy, puts the legend, true story, and song of Stagger Lee into the context of the black anti-hero and possibly the first black Western outlaw. Brown also wrote a historical fiction titled, I, Stagger Lee, that further embellishes the history and the legend. Around the same time as Brown was digging into the historical record of Stagger Lee, Real Marcus, the music writer, was also looking into the legend, and his findings come up in a book titled Mystery Train. And just as recently as a few months ago, Chuck D. of Public Enemy narrated a Clash miniseries on Spotify called Stay Free, the Story of the Clash. So if you want to find out more detailed information, you have my sources. In this show, my goal is to first explain to myself why The Clash didn't finish the first part of Wrong and Boyo, and second, share with you what I found through a radio format featuring the songs that made it possible. Considering the right-wing, conservative, anti-immigration, and racist politics we're looking down the barrel of in the United States today, this is the perfect time to give the strummer some and revisit The Clash. For these 1920 adaptations, the musical history of Stagger Lee begins with A and B versions of the song documented by the music archivists John and Alan Lomax in their book American Ballads and Folk Songs. There appears to be a Charlie Lee version from 1897 that I couldn't find, but the song is based on a story ripped from the headlines, although over the years the details have been embellished to favor different ideologies. The true story, as it's been documented from newspaper accounts, boiled down to its basic facts, comes to this. On
1: Christmas Day in
0: 1895 in St. Louis, Missouri, locals Lee Shelton and Billy Lyons met at Bill Curtis's Saloon, a bar with a reputation for bloodshed. Billy Lyons was a levy hand who, that night, asked another friend if he could borrow a knife for protection. Lee Shelton was a flashy dresser and a bit more wealthy. he He was referred to as a carriage driver, but his style and dress indicated that he was more like what we might call a pimp or, at the time, a mac. Billy bought Lee a drink, and witnesses have them talking and laughing for a while until the subject of politics came up. Being of different parties and drunk by this point, Shelton, Stack Lee, grabbed and crushed Billy's ordinary brown derby hat, possibly as an ill-timed joke. Billy responded by grabbing Shelton's finer Stetson hat. Lee lost his sense of humor and pistol-whipped lions when he refused to return the hat. At that point, Billy pulled out his borrowed knife and challenged Lee to give him his best shot.
2: Stagger Lee shot Billy Shot the boy so bad The bullet went through Billy Broke the bartenders looking black Talking about the bad man Cruel old Stagger Lee
0: Then Lee shot Billy in the abdomen, took his hat from Billy's hands, and walked out of the bar.
2: Fuzzy shot him in the shoulder, three times in the side, yeah.
0: When he got home, that's Lee bad. gave his landlady his gun for safekeeping and went to sleep. Billy would die that night. The next morning, the police knocked on Lee's door, and he left with them without resisting.
1: So who can this who? Got this hole that's dirty the motherfucker's head. Who can this murder be?
0: Due to his wealth, he was released on two separate bail bonds. Between this time and the start of the trial on July 15, 1896, the Lomax version A was likely composed. The St. Louis Globe Democrat wrote a report about the case, embellishing it with a falsehood that they had been shooting craps. During the trial, the jury couldn't decide between first or second-degree murder or self-defense. So it was retried and eventually Stack Lee had been found guilty of second-degree murder and was sent to Missouri State Penitentiary on October 7, 1896
1: to begin a
3: 25-year sentence.
0: His connections and money paroled him in 1909 after 13 years, which was lenient for a black man at the time. Two years after that, he found himself in prison again for another pistol-whipping.
3: The judge said, Mr. Stackley, Mr. Stackley, I'm going to hang your body up and set your spirit free because you're a bad man. Your name is Stackley.
0: He died in the Missouri State Penitentiary of Tuberculosis on March 11, 1911. The Lomax B version, which includes the erroneous craps game, also added flourishing details of his execution and eternal damnation.
2: Don't,
3: don't, no! Come on.
0: Come on. By the time Staggerly died in prison of TB, he was already an archetype, and his story was growing to legendary proportions. traditions that keeps on going. So let's get back to The Clash. What's Stagger Lee doing in their song? When The Clash played Wrong and Boyo, they started from a different source. They begin with the Lloyd Price take, but their decision to stop short and change the melody came from somewhere else. It turns out that decision wasn't original either. They heard it from an obscure band called The Rulers, in a version written by someone just as obscure named Clive Alfonso. Here is The Ruler's Rong and Boyo from 1967.
2: Try to cheat In such a small, small game Don't you know it was wrong To cheat the trying man Don't you know it was wrong To cheat the trying Jump!
0: Clash cover a creative interpretation of Stagger Lee by an obscure Jamaican band? Well, that's where the layers start to peel back, getting more interesting and complex the deeper you go. (music) Bernard Rhodes was the Clash's manager for the years before and after London Calling, but ironically, not during those recordings. By most accounts, punk rock as it came about in the UK was his conceptual project in cahoots with Malcolm McLaren and fashion designer Vivian Westwood. The three worked in tandem and in competition to form both the Sex Pistols and the Clash. New York punk had different origins in the Ramones, television, the Stooges, and the New York Dolls who McLaren got his experience promoting. Rhodes and McLaren threw a t-shirt design that read, You're going to wake up one morning and know what side of the bed you've been lying on created a list of loves and hates to set the stage for punk. While putting most of the rock and roll that all of The Clash grew up on, including Rod Stewart and Mick Jagger, it also included Salvador Dali and Anthony Hayden guest in the hate category, leading the bands to cut and dye their hair, cut and safety pin their clothing, and take speed instead of LSD. The love category included Iggy Pop, John Coltrane, and Sam Cooke, along with Valerie Solanas, labor exchanges with your local, King Tubby's sound system, Bob Marley, and Jamaican Rude Boys. Bernie included reggae, dub, ska, and sound systems for two reasons. First, it was produced in Bernard's thinking from The Ghetto, a landscape the working class white punks could form solidarity with in 1976 and 77, and second because it addressed political and social injustices with lyrics pulled right from the headlines, something that attracted the clash. The punk and early skinhead movement aligned themselves with reggae and ska for these reasons and against the fascist culture that skinheads later became known for. But from its conception in the UK with The Clash, punk was an inclusive and progressive movement, even if Sid Vicious, in an interview where he is mostly asleep, wore a t-shirt with a swastika on it. Bernie and Joe were adamant about their entourage not playing into the fascist version of anarchy. Flash song White Riot was misinterpreted by white nationalists. Joe, in the lyrics and interviews that stand for themselves, was adamant that the band were anti-fascist. Much later, Joe was equally disturbed when he learned that his lyric, Rock the Casbah" had been written on a bomb used in the Gulf War. White Riot is specifically about The Clash supporting, aligning with, and drawing inspiration from the Black Panthers. (laughs) To put this in context, the manager of the punk precursor band The MC5 in Detroit was John Sinclair. Sinclair reacted to a call to action after a radio interview by Black Panther leader Huey Newton for downtrodden white people in Detroit and elsewhere, unemployed, broke, wasting away on drugs and alcohol and causing trouble out of boredom to join forces with the Panthers under a separate and independent banner. Sinclair became a leader to what was later called the White Panther Party, an organization that acted in support of the causes of the Black Panthers while keeping their heads about the differences in privilege. Their ideology included anti-racism, anti-capitalism, anti-fascism, and standing up for social causes, like a clean planet and freeing political prisoners. You could say Bernie Rhodes, in part, modeled his management of the clash on John Sinclair's management of the MC5. Joe Strummer never wavered from these values.
4: This song I wrote for John Sinclair.
0: Eventually, the police and FBI put John Sinclair in prison on trumped-up marijuana charges. Ten years for two was the rally cry. Ten years in prison for two joints. A disproportionate punishment for the crime, the kind of disproportion the black community has always lived with. Not long after Sinclair's incarceration, but after the demise of the Black Panther Party via prison sentences, assassinations and murders, and the disbanding of the then-managerless MC5, New York residents John Lennon and Yoko Ono organized a John Sinclair Freedom Rally, gathering celebrities like Allen Ginsberg, Stevie Wonder, Bob Seeger, and Black Panther Bobby Seale.
3: Gave him What
4: else can Judge Columba do?
0: Three days later... He spent two years
4: in prison, virtually in isolation, in solitary in case he infiltrated the other prisoners or something. He didn't want any help for two years because he thought, why bother, justice will let me out, my appeals will let me out, gradually and gradually. After two years, he began to worry, and he asked for some help. We went down, had a rally with 15,000 people, and uh, it was a beautiful show. Many people denoted their time to it, and we came along, sang the songs we sang to you, and this one, John close to the final one. By a stroke of good luck, he was released on Monday
0: and the ex-Beatles adds that because of Sinclair, marking a recognition that punk rock and its social ideology with Sinclair's influence had spread across the ocean as a result of the national attention. This kind of social pressure that one could apply as a musician with some sort of population sway is the kind of model that Joe Strummer kept in his sight. Clash adopted a policy of playing benefits for deserving social causes and local community action. They signed on for Rock Against Racism because they believed in the cause. The National Front was starting to gain a foothold in the UK, and many punks were falling for its xenophobic rhetoric. So was an unlikely Eric Clapton, who, in a Birmingham, UK concert in 1976, went on a drunken tirade between songs saying that immigrants should go back to where they came from using far more racist and colorful language than that, that Britain should remain a white country and supporting Enoch Powell, the extreme conservative member of parliament, most known for his racist and anti-immigration rivers of blood speech in 1968. Rod Stewart, also supportive, referred to Powell as the man. Powell was a precursor to Steve Bannon, just as Kanye West plays today's Eric Clapton role. And Roger Daltrey supported Brexit. Forty years before Brexit and Trump, history repeats itself and never learns from its mistakes. The Clash also participated in the anti-Nazi League carnival in 1978, and long after Joe and Mick had a falling out which led to the breakup of the Clash, The only time they reunited before Joe's death was to benefit a labor action for a local firehouse. Mick showed up to play some Clash tunes with Joe's then-band, The Mescaleros. So for Bernard Rhodes' part in it, the solidarity that Huey Newton inspired in John Sinclair is related to the solidarity that Bernie inspired in The Clash with reggae. So the light and bouncy rulers came in through Bernard Rhodes too. Before managing The Clash, Bernie sold reggae at a record stall. He was also the one who put the wrong Mboyo 45 in the jukebox at rehearsal rehearsals where The Clash recorded their first songs. Clash bass player Paul Simonon also ushered reggae in. He learned the basics of playing the bass first from listening to the Ramones, but then learned it mostly from listening to reggae. The bass is more in the foreground on reggae records than it is on rock and roll, so for someone learning the bass for the first time, he chose that reggae bounce. But it goes deeper than that. Paul had grown up in the West Indian area of Brixton, where he heard the music, ate the food, and found his early friends. Reggae, dub, and ska were the soundtrack to his block. Then, in 1972, when the soundtrack and film The Harder They Come, Starring Jimmy Cliff and featuring Desmond Decker and other Jamaican musicians came out. Paul, who didn't like school, found teachers in what he listened to.
1: And in 1977,
0: Don Letts, filmmaker and DJ at the Roxy Club where punk was born, and some say died after 100 nights there played reggae and dub between punk band sets, uniting the music and communities. Don gave Joe Strummer a Trojan compilation of classics of ska, rocksteady, and early reggae that Joe listened to exclusively for the next several months. Then in 1978, Bernie arranged a trip for Joe and Jones to stay in Jamaica for 10 days, but he left Paul, the reggae enthusiast and the only one somewhat familiar with West Indian culture behind. Mick and Joe were contracted as the songwriters, and Paul was not, so it was one of Bernie's scheming business decisions. Paul went to Russia instead and collected star iconography that the band would use as graphics. The only song Paul wrote is Guns of Brixton, based on his early neighborhood experience, and Mick and Joe gave him royalty credits. It turned out that Joe and Mick, dressed as punks, were white and way out of place in 1978 Kingston, and spent the majority of their time holed up in their hotel room. But they used their time wisely, smoking ganja and writing songs. Even though The Clash always held progressive ideals and played the music they loved, it wasn't until meeting the reality of Kingston face-to-face that Joe and Mick realized they were out of their depth and had been idolizing a romanticized version of Kingston, rude boy culture, and reggae. And Joe would later express this well in his song, White Boy at the Hammersmith Palais, after Don Letts again invited him to a reggae night that surprised him out of his delusion. Joe took both of these experiences as lessons in empathy building. During this time, the Clash were well aware of the challenges of cultural appropriation. Johnny Rotten, of the Sex Pistols for One, along with most other musicians in 1976, came down hard on Eric Clapton, not only for his rendition of I Shot the Sheriff, some called him Rock's biggest colonist in a letter to the editor. Elvis and the Rolling Stones and early record companies made it policy to do this, but it was Clapton's tirade that triggered Rock against racism. With a personal consciousness and sensitivity to cultural appropriation, their personal confrontation with Paul's Neighborhood, Kingston, and the scene at the Hammersmith allowed The Clash to approach songs with integrity that foregrounded solidarity. If The Clash were referring to Rude Boys and Rude Boy culture, they were addressing the obvious comparison to white punk and skin culture. The Clash always knew the audience whose ear they had. So this brings me back to the rulers. Carl Johnson, who went by the name Sir J.J., was a Kingston jukebox distributor, turned record salesman, turned music producer, who made the J.J. label in Jamaica. Then London-based producer Rio was interested in Jamaican sounds and was looking to make crossover music with J.J. Rio introduced Curtis Mayfield's People Get Ready to Bob Marley, who interpreted it as... While cultural appropriation is the easy answer to how the Clash covered Wrong and Boyo, or even how the Rulers covered Stagger Lee, there's another way to look at this particular situation. Sir J.J. wanted to expand his jukebox business by not only buying records, but also producing them and appeal to the UK market. So he hired his neighbor in Jamaica Clive Alfonso, among other songwriters, write songs for his various acts, based on things that were happening in Kingston. The ruler's songs, Don't Be a Rude Boy, Copacetic, and Wrong and Boyo," apparently came from Sir JJ running into Clive or someone else on the street and saying, Hey, write me a song called Copacetic, based on the word being used in the headlines. Bernie Rhodes had a jukebox at Rehearsal Rehearsal Studios, possibly one of Sir JJ's, and Being the record seller that Bernie was, he had several white label copies of the rulers, Wrong and Boyo. So that's where The Clash first heard the song. So what the hell does Stagger Lee have to do with Wrong and Boyo in reggae? Well, that's Clive Alfonso's doing. The Stagger Lee legend fit nicely into the Rude Boy ideology. Thematically, the Rude Boy theme plays throughout London Calling in Jimmy Jazz, Guns of Brixton, Death or Glory, and Wrong and Boyo. Early to mid-60s, an economic squeeze in Kingston had led a large number of young men from rural parts of Jamaica to the capital in search of work that didn't exist. The only thing we know about the rulers is that they were from the country. With massive numbers of unemployed and impoverished young men around, the inevitable result was a wave of robbery and violence just out of sheer young masculine boredom. See, there's the parallel to London via Margaret Thatcher circa 1970s. These Rude Boys, as they were called, carried ratchet knives and sometimes guns. The violence got so bad that the city declared a state of emergency and the police and military imposed a curfew from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., which had a detrimental effect on the musical nightlife. Many artists responded to the situation by writing songs about it in tandem with the local newspapers. Some songs supported Rude Boys, while some tried to dissuade them or simmer them down. ¶¶ Rulers, with lyrics written by local Kingston writers like Clive Alfonso, plug into the side of discouraging them from violence and encouraging them to get wise, avoid jail, and respect their fellow citizens. This is the message presented by the rulers. Think about it. The curfew as a result of the rude boys was affecting nightclub life and the musicians wanted to play and work, so if the Rude Boys would chill, the musicians could perform again. So while Alfonso sided against the draconian curfew and the oppressive police state, as most in the African diaspora would, his songs pushed the message that everyone should strive to be a better person and choose right over wrong. The Clash, as punk shifted into a scene being infested with white nationalists and football hooligans, who were being clamped down at football games so they brought their trouble to nightclubs, aligned themselves and their message with Sir J.J., Clive Alfonso, and the ruler. It's true that the Clash wanted to create an uprising and a white riot at that, but as the lyrics to White Riot make clear, the song's position was in solidarity with the black uprisings, pushing the position, hey, they're out there standing up for their rights against the authorities in their community. How come we aren't standing up and fighting for ours? The same authority and capitalist structure is oppressing all of us.
3: You make, you buy, you die. That's the motto of America. You get born to buy it. And if there's anything going to be in the future, it's got to be from all parts of everything, not just one white wave down the middle of the road. I need some hostility here, you know. Ah. Yeah, I need some feeling of some sort.
0: One form of entertainment for the Rude Boys in Kingston was watching movies. Anything with outlaws and gunfights gave the ruckus audience what they wanted. So in walks Stagger Lee, riding on a Clive Alfonso lyric. Stag was the quintessential outlaw, the model Rude Boy. The character of Ivan in The Harder They Come is cut from Stagger Lee's archetype. He gets a shout-out in Paul's Guns of Brixton.
1: Like Brixton
3: you know
2: no gun.
0: Stagg was a bad man. All versions of the song agree.
2: Bad man, oh cruel,
0: On the other hand, he was fighting the law, which was cool, too. When they kick out your front door, how are you going to come? With your hands on on your head or your trigger on your your gun? Death or glory, it's just another story. With the rude boys out of work and causing trouble in Kingston, under an oppressive curfew, and then the punks in London wreaking havoc on individual citizens and culture alike, One can easily form a bridge to the politics of the Black Panthers in the USA by way of witnessing the uprisings and subsequent clampdowns by American police and FBI. Toxic masculinity was at a peak on the shores of many ponds. As Grill Marcus points out, Black Panther Bobby Seale summed it up by saying that he named his son Malik Nkrumah Staggerly
1: Seale. He
0: calls Malcolm X Staggerly. Huey Newton, he says, had a lot of Staggerly qualities. And he says, I guess I've lived a bit of Staggerly's life too, as did Eldridge Cleaver. He equates Staggerly to the black community and all the Staggerlys, millions of them. So black culture has embraced the legend of Staggerly from the late 1800s. white folk culture up through Nick Cave apparently likes the villain fighting the man archetype too. Stag is the ultimate anti-authoritarian standing tall. Some might think, what's the big idea fighting over a hat? But Cecil Brown, for one, makes the case that the Stetson was a symbol of manhood. A black man wearing a Stetson was a free man and had come of age in the white man's society. He was no longer the boy that white culture wanted him to remain. So even as a joke, if you take the Stetson, you not only take that earned manhood, but you also take a man's freedom. And that, regardless of whatever laws are in place, is worth killing a man for. Staggerly and the rude boy mindset shared another thing in common that might make better sense of why people cheered for such a bad man. The song gained popularity in the Jim Crow South because Staggerly refused the white man's status quo. The hat triggered a response to a set of rules that didn't apply to the European immigrants' laws. And Stagg and the Rude Boys, like Ivan and The Harder They Come, refused to accept rules established by slaveholders and then segregationists because they existed to keep them down.
3: Better go
4: somewhere your money line,
0: Jim Crow laws in the not-so-United States were structured by white European immigrant lawmakers to keep the descendants of black slaves unequal, and all of this was done and remains done on the occupied land of Native Americans. Figures like Stag and the Rude Boy simply didn't recognize the white man's laws. They just didn't apply to them if they existed to continually oppress them. Beyond a rebellion, it was more akin to two people speaking different languages or, with disrespect to the cliche of racism, Forcing square pegs through round holes. Considered in this light, perhaps the best contemporary example of Stagger Lee in all of his controversy, in relation to how he captured both the media attention and the collective black consciousness, is O.J. Simpson. Clash attached themselves to all of this by uniting the cultures and struggles of the black and white communities. Rude boys, mods, punks, and skinheads were all types in London in the early and mid 1970s. So Joe and Mick were narrating their times. Through the rulers, thanks to Clive Alfonso, Sir JJ, and Bernie Rhodes, they could tie it all up historically in the legend of Stagger Lee. In Wrong and Boyo, it's the break that makes the ruler song so unique. And it's that same break that makes The Clash's interpretation poignant. By breaking the path of Stagger Lee, The Clash is picking up on Clive Alfonso's signal that the path of violence needs to switch from right to wrong. It's like they're singing the narrative to a different end. Though they were never that idealistic, it stands as the same message of unity that Clive Alfonso and the rulers chose to side on and rather than two people dying over a drunken misunderstanding weighted in heavy symbolism, why not join forces and fight the law and the oppressive right-wing that is dragging all races and classes down? We all have something to lose when the 1% are sucking us all dry, even if at different rates, according to race. Wrong and Boyo was a ready-made, waiting for the juxtaposition that the clash created in 1979, and it's still relevant today. What does it mean? Among all of this political context, it comes down to a linguistic question. Everyone is curious about the title. A lot of theories have been floated, but none of them satisfactory. And I may not come up with one, but there is another way to look at it. Most people ask, what does emboyo mean? Or what's an emboyo? An early ruler's release had a typo that read it as wrong embryo. That clearly makes no sense. Some think M is short for them, and Boyo possibly a Jamaican patois for boy. Marcus Gray makes a case for Boyo being Welsh rather than Jamaican based on a Dylan Thomas radio show called Under Milkwood from 1953 that included a character named No Good Boyo, but The Clash were clearly not listening to Dylan Thomas on their jukebox or at the Hammersmith in 1977. Gray comes up with another idea that seems plausible. Since Alfonso's lyrics indicate that Mboyo needs to translate into something like thing to do or approach, he suggests that M could be a shortened form of end, suggesting that the rude boy behavior is pursuing the wrong end of the stick or even the gun or of the law. But there's another possibility based deeper in linguistics. While wrong emboyo clearly refers to the wrong direction or behavior since it's posed against right emboyo in both the ruler's version and the clashes version, we may be looking at the words in the wrong pairing. Rather than asking the question what does emboyo mean, we should be asking what does wrongem mean? Boyo, it's as obvious as it can be, is a derivative of boy. And boyo, or boya, as it could be in the ruler's version, seems to stem from a rhythm decision. Reggae beats end on the upbeat, and boy stops too abruptly. A ya, or yo, at the end is just an added syllable to support the melody. Say rude boy ten times fast, mimicking a reggae beat, and you find it acquires four syllables instead of two. Or, perhaps, listen to Buffalo Soldier by Bob Marley. Musicians often do this, stretch out a word into more syllables to fit the beat. The lyric, as it's written by Joe, as attributed to Clive Alfonso, reads, It is the wrong Mboyo with an apostrophe before M, and M and boyo as two separate words. Since no lyric sheets of Alfonso's version of the rulers exists, I haven't seen any archival documents, and every lyric site on the internet lists only the Clash's lyrics even for the rulers' songs, where the lyrics are clearly different. Joe has added some to keep the staggerly motif throughout.
2: Briggs.
0: What I'm saying is that Alfonso's lyrics from the Ruler song have been transcribed only by ear. The song was only released on a 45, so no lyric sheet came with it. So Joe likely transcribed the lyrics himself, or if he didn't, someone before him surely did. The end of the first line stands out, which could read at least two ways, if not more. Staggerly and, and Billy, two men who gambled late, is the reading that would most clearly allow the rhyme with eight to oppose the seven one that Lloyd Price adopted. The other possibility in the Alfonso lyric is that it reads two men who gambled, where gambled is pronounced two men two men who gambled. gambled. Two syllables establishing a forced rhyme, a technique common in poetry and music.
2: Like lead seven for
0: the clash adopt the word gambling and thus further forced the rhyme with
3: eight.
0: Something similar, I suspect, happened with the refrain. Rong boyo could just as easily have been a wrongin' boyo in the ruler's lyrics. A uh, instead of the... And wrongin or wronging, boyo instead of wrong emboyo.
2: It is a wrong emboyo. Yeah.
0: History has been pretty fluid, moving from staggly to stagolly to stackally to staggerly. So telephone-style phonetics could easily have changed. It's a wronging boy to wrong emboyo, just as readin and writin are commonly pronounced. So could Rongen be.
3: German, German, and I hope you like German too.
0: Is Bob really saying we're German and we hope you like German too? Or is he singing about raspberry preserves? dan payaka.
2: And then go
0: Especially in black vernacular, exemplified by signifying. As described by Henry Louis Gates Jr. in his book situating Black Literary Theory Against the White Theory Boom of Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, Gates plots out a history of black literary theory through vernacular by way of Ishmael Reed's classic fiction Mumbo Jumbo and Ralph Ellison's Shadow and Act. This linguistic turn of signifying to signifying is a political act, almost like a Stetson hat, but through language. I'd say the case of wrong and boyo is a similar case of vernacular drift. This type of behavior that Stackley and or Billy Lyons and the Rude Boys and the Punks and Skinheads are perpetuating might be considered the wrong behavior, according to Alfonso, the Rulers, and the Clash. If there's a patois to be found, or a vernacular, or simply a lyric to fit the rhythm, it falls into a slang that equates wronging as a noun to characterize this type of behavior. It's an act of wronging, and you should be writin' instead. So it is a wrongin', boy, oh. It's likely that Clive Alfonso was signifying when he wrote this lyric, and it was that which he signified that the clash picked up on, even if they misspelled the title and refrain. Joe Strummer was only doing what everyone who ever recorded their own version of Lee did. He made it his own as a way to continue the legend's organic life as an oral tradition. So what is The Clash doing with this song? Well, it's doing just what The Clash intended to do. It pointed me and you towards this history that ties together the struggles of the cultures of racism, classism and economic blight and it connects the history from the late 1800s to the southern Jim Crow United States to the political upheaval in Jamaica in the late 60s to the Black Panthers and John Sinclair to the punk movement in the UK in the late 1970s and by my going into this long analysis ties it into the repetition of racial injustice and anti-immigration politics that we're facing today in the United States. Joe Strummer would have opposed this bullshit with all his might in the very least to vote to continue this insanity of a presidency is most definitely a wrong in boyo and gerlo <music> to bring this to a close in a 1999 interview for CD Now Joe Strummer was asked a question he'd been asked so much that he had an answer for it what is punk rock Joe answered my motto is never take your eye off the ball which is a soccer motto I like to be completely aware of what's going on at all times even if it's 4 in the morning. She needs a chair or he needs a beer. There's no long wait because I've already clocked it while everyone's going meh meh meh. I'm going meh 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 too but I know what's going on around me. This is punk rock. In fact, punk rock means exemplary manners to your fellow human being. Fuck being an asshole what you pricks thought it was twenty years ago.
4: I appreciate everything in my life with a punk rock host you. In fact, punk rock means exemplary manners to your fellow human being.
0: This clearly contrasts with any sense of punk having to do with hedonism, nihilism, drug addiction and the me first, then everyone else in ever-expanding circles mentality.
4: Everything's blando, blando, blando. You know, let's have a revolt from the bottom up. Drugs are over from this minute now. We have fallen into every pitfall that you could possibly fall into as a group starting from nothing and becoming something. Probably invented a few new ones along the way. The success goes to your head pitfall, the ego trip pitfall, you think you're geniuses, you become drug addicts, you make overindulgent records, you overdub the sound of ants biting through a wooden beam. All these things, we've gone through each and every damn one of them.
0: Punk, I suppose, can be anything you want to turn it into depending on how you feel like transcribing its surface sound, adapting and adding erroneous facts along the way to suit whatever needs you want to fit it to. But if you look at its history and its creators, you'll find that, at least in the UK and with The Clash, it started in solidarity with movements to support social and racial justice for fellow citizens and exemplary care.
4: They used to ask me, so, how you you guys think you're going to change the world like some smart-ass newspaper reporter who wouldn't know tenderness from a can of beans? When they push you down, it's hard not to fall. They said it so often that you began to believe them, which is fatal. And so now I'd like to say people can change anything they want to, and that means everything in the world Show me any country, and there'll be people in it. And it's the people that make the country. And people have got to stop pretending they ain't on the world. People are running about following their little tracks. I am one of them. But we've all got to stop just following our own little mouse trail. People can do anything. People are out there doing bad things to each other because they've been dehumanized. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. Greed, it ain't going anywhere. The richest person in the world is the most unhappy one. They should have that in a big billboard across Times Square. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing.
0: Before closing with Wrong and Boyo, I'm going to fade out with Bob Marley playing Punky Reggae Party from 1977, where he shouts out to The Jam, The Damned, and Clash. Bob wrote this in an act of solidarity, sort of extending his hand back to The Clash for their rendition of Junior Mervyn's Police and Thieves. I'm David Colosi, and you've been listening to a new segment on the Napping Wizard sessions called One Song. Tune in again for something else. Special thanks to Brick Arts Media.
3: Small game, don't, don't you, know you know it is wrong? wrong. To keep crying, man. Don't you know it, it is wrong? To keep crying, man. You, you better stop. stop. It is a wrong of Stop! She the trying man, you better stop. It is the wrong unloy.